If you like to gamble, I tell you I'm your man. You win some, lose some, it's all the same to me. Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the Motorcast. Welcome back if you're a subscriber and welcome for the first time if this is indeed your first visit. Uh, my name is Howard H. Smith. You may know me as lead singer with UK thrash band Acid Rain or from my other heavy metal podcast Talking Bollocks. But on this show I am merely your guide through the world of everything that is Motorhead. So please make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever and however you got this there'll be a subscribe button click on that every episode will come to your device you don't have to do anything um, other than download it when you get a notification saying hey good news another motorcast so what have we got for you this time well if you have picked up one of the amazing amazing box sets of um, the Ace of Spades you will have a ton of exclusive notes all written by this next guy Chris Needs. Now, Chris um, was a journalist back in the day. He was one of the very, very first people to give Motorhead any coverage whatsoever, and uh, and also coverage that wasn't giving the band a hard time. So um, it was great to catch uh, catch up with Chris. He's got some wonderful stories. A man who was there from the very beginning. So without further ado, no point beating about the bush. This is Chris Needs and I having a conversation a few weeks ago. I was given your the notes that you've written for um, the anniversary, which look spectacular. And as I began reading them, I soon realised that if I read all of these, I'm going to be way too well informed for an interview. Oh, right. Because there does need to be a certain amount of, you know, of inquisitive inquisitiveness left in the interviewer. So... Um, <laughs> And I'm sure you've got, I'm sure you've got, you know, a lot to say besides the, the the notes you've written. But I guess the perfect start, the perfect start is right at the very beginning, and how you ended up being in a position to be so close to the band around this time. Right. I mean, and before we start, weirdly, I'm, I'm writing a piece for this new magazine called Fistful of Metal. Oh yes, with... I am. I am aware of this magazine. Yes. Oh, Eugene, and. Um... I'm doing 8,000 words on the Ace of Spades. I mean, it, it would be very tempting to um, just, you know, <laughs> lazily give them what I'd just done to Miles, but I, I really don't want to do that to Miles or or myself, and also I'm giving it a broader context, so that includes a bit more about what happened. Because the one thing I'm realising, actually, since I did the notes, is Ace of Spades was a culmination and um, a triumph of um, all the five years that had gone before. You know, it was yeah. um, it, it was terrible for them. I mean, the thing, and nobody ever appreciates how, and this applies to other bands like The Clash and Blondie that I was hanging around with at the time. Um, they were slagged mercilessly in the music press and, and at that time, the music press were powerful. You know, they're not powerful now. Yeah. Um, you know, people read the monthlies for the nostalgia pieces, which often paint a very rosy picture of, you know, not what it was actually like. <laughs> yeah. You know, if people have just used Wikipedia to do a bit of research, um, you know, it's very hard to convey what it actually felt like at the time. And Motorhead... I can't tell you how much they were reviled, hated, um, 
and really, really treated in it, you know, as this disgusting entity that should be stamped out at all costs. You know, it was really awful. I mean, Lemmy had come out of Hawkwind um, and he'd actually got Motorhead together with a fair degree of revenge in his brain because, um, you know, he got threw out, thrown out for doing too much speed. Yeah. Um, actually wrote a song called Motorhead that was on the B-side of a uh, Hawkwind single and um, that was all about speed and of course Hawkwind were all sort of, you know, hash smoking vegetarians and um, so this was kind of an act of revenge along with um, making sure he visited each member of the band's girlfriends while they were away on tour <laughs> to exact a, a different kind of um, revenge um, <laughs> Lemmy style uh, but you know he put this band together and he wanted to he was you know hanging out with Mick Farron and or, or you know the Labrick Grove bunch um, who were kind of the counterculture you know hangover from, from the 60s and um, you know he put together this band and it just always was intended to be kind of like a UK answer to the MC5. And he got in Larry Wallace from the Pink Fairies and Lucas Fox on drums. And, um, uh, well, UA rejected their first album. They they supported Blue Oyster Cult at Hammersmith and um, got slagged. I mean, they weren't allowed any sound check or equipment, so that it was awful, and they were panned. And from that moment on, they were lumbered the worst band in Britain award, you know, NME. They actually got voted that. Um, I think it was in 76. So it was, they were really at rock bottom and so hated and it was just complete drudgery. They were going to throw in the towel, you know, until Ted Carroll came along and uh, said he'd release an album on Chiswick and there you go, you know, they but they were still... Um, they still had this thing attached to them that, you know, the press hated them. And as it happened, I was given a magazine called Zigzag in June 1977. Um, Zigzag was like the first fanzine. It was launched in 69 by a guy called Pete Frame, um, who does the Rock Family Trees. And um, Pete, very graciously, because he'd come up in the rock and roll era that Lemmy loved, um, Pete saw punk as a kind of, you know, the the 70s incarnation of the 50s rock and roll spirit, as did Lemmy. And Pete gave me the magazine, which was great, you know. So um, I'd only been doing it like about a month, and that first Motorhead 12-inch turned up, and I gave it a good review. And then the album turned up, and I gave that a good review too. And these were pretty much the only good reviews they were getting. Right. Um, I think they might have got one in Sounds. I mean, Sounds was a bit more um, amenable to them, but Enemy, Melody Maker, all those, forget it. And yeah. the obvious thing to do would be to interview the band. So um, they... I was also involved with a club called Friars Aylesbury. It's... Um, 
started in 69 and it's still going today uh i live in aylesbury so it was my local and um you know i've been going there since opening night in 69 and it has quite a reputation you know it's where bowie unveiled ziggy stardust and um all this and it was getting any band that showed like it might um I don't know. Well, you know, they must have got Motorhead quite cheap. Um, <laughs> but they were touring to do the, you know, around the first album, and we had Motorhead, and I set up an interview uh, to put, you know, do a four-page piece in zigzag, and I went to the dressing room and met them all for the first time. <laughs> I'd seen Lemmy and Hawkwind, but we'd never spoken, and, uh, oh, you know, it's the story I've told a million times how I walked in the dressing room Lemmy comes up with a plastic bag full of biker speed whipped out a Nazi dagger and piled it up shoved it under my nose and said do it till it hurts <laughs> and uh, then I had to drink a can of special brew down in one and uh, ha- having se- successfully well you know I've made out I'd successfully done this initiation test yeah, yeah. You know, we did the interview, and I gave them four pages. I raved about them. I had a go at all the, you know, other writers for slagging them off. And because, um, you know, a lot of writers were intimidated, scared, and they were too dirty for, you know, your average Joy Division-loving sued who wrote for NME, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it threatened them really i mean it was something too real for them to handle you know and um it was also the loudest thing i'd ever heard and it was the most exciting and you know from then on i never looked back and it just so happened zigzag's office was on talbot road which was just off portobello and lemmy lived around the corner uh in a basement now demolished uh chepstow villas and um Lemmy used to sort of drop off in the office and, you know, after work, I, I'd find myself going around Lemmy's, <laughs> uh, which was brilliant. I mean, it, you know, stuffed anteater in the corner, um, <laughs> like a motorhead museum already, you know, just as you'd expect completely. And, you know, then we'd hit the pubs on Portobello Road and we became mates, you know. But, I mean, I was only, how old was I? like 22 or something at the time and um right how old would he have been around that time then oh well you know he probably was about 10 years older than me um it um but you know i mean i was fairly in awe of him yeah but uh but to him i think i came over as a kind of you know wide-eyed enthusiastic kid and um i was totally devoted to motorhead and you know, I, I had a way of conveying that in this monthly magazine that you could buy in Smith's. So, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was, uh, you know, it, it was just a crusade in the end. I mean, I did this with a couple of bands, you know, that were getting a tough time in the music press. And the music press were, you know, for all their shouting, they were very conservative in lots of ways. And yeah. um, Motorhead were outside the law they were outside the normal you know what was considered 
reasonable behaviour. Well, <laughs> and, well they, uh, they they weren't easily pigeonholed either, either were they? And that's and I think that's what causes an issue certainly for NME and people like that at the time. Because well, yeah, because you, you know, I mean, I, I did go. I used to go at the punk clubs, and I used to go with Lemmy. I mean, I I took him down the vortex on Wardour Street and um, knocked his speed in the bog. <laughs> I always remember that. I thought I was going to be um, <laughs> killed. Um, but no, I mean, the punks were who didn't mind the fact Motorhead had long hair, which, believe it or not, was an issue. Oh, yeah. You know, it's a some punks you know it was like you know but but to me motorhead were faster louder nastier than any punk band i saw you know and that's what all these punk bands squeaking you know with their spiky hair um you know squeaking about being on the dole and then motorhead you know could do them with one blast of lenny's bass i mean it was uh you know double standards and yeah. um so the next step was uh, when they were recording Overkill, you know, and I was hanging around in Dingwalls, uh, as you do, and it turned around they were uh, recording it round the corner. And um, Lemmy came in, saw me at the bar, and, ah, come around here. You know, and I, I was planted in the studio and uh, heard Overkill, you know, pummeling out the speakers for the first time. Wow. And... Um, so I went and raved about that. I did more features, and um, so it went on. I mean, I I went to see them at every opportunity. They came back to our club, and I just watched as they became bigger and bigger. Yeah. At one point, it seemed like by the month, you know, the, the number of people with motorhead T-shirts in the audience were increasing. Well, this is—I mean, this is this is amazing to hear from you about these times now because it, it's like in a very short space of time, you know, Ace of Spades is released. They're doing a UK tour. They're playing four dates at Hammersmith Odeon to to end it, and and it, it, it that's that's not that far away from the times you're describing now. No, I mean they were playing really small clubs. I mean our our club was about a thousand people. Um, they were. They were on the toilet circuit, and um, <laughs> you know they they worked their way up though. And Overkill really helped, and plus you know that put them on top of the pops. I used to go to top of the pops with them, <laughs> which is always interesting. Um, and uh, then they did Bomber, and um, that was a real masterstroke getting the Bomber on stage. Yeah. And. Um, then Lemmy came up with the bright idea that uh, I should write a book about Motorhead because by that time, you know, they deserved one. I mean, the book market then was a lot different <laughs> to how imagine. it is now. Yes. You know, so so I did. I mean, I started through 79. I, I was doing all the research. You know, I went to Finland with them, um, the one where they got arrested. <laughs> um I went all all over the place, France, and um, on tour, you know. And but when Ace of Spades was going to be, um, because they, they weren't that happy with Bomber and Overkill, because Jimmy Miller, you know, who'd done all those amazing albums with the Stones, um, by then he was a bit of a shell of his former self. <laughs> right. Um, you know, he really had a problem with drugs. Um, 
as a, a Stones casualty. You know, there were a lot of people who hung out with Keith Richards and, and never came back, you know. Right, and yeah. Jimmy was kind of... Well, I mean, according to Eddie, um, you know, he just overdubbed everything a million times and um, took away a lot of the power. I mean, my, my main... I love the songs, you know, like No Class and Bomber itself, but... Uh, I never thought they packed the punch that Motorhead had live. And you can hear it on the live versions, on, on the bonus, you know, on those two two that My, Miles put out, um, you know, last year yeah. uh, for Bomber and Overkill. You know, you can hear the live versions and compare them to the studio. I mean, now they sound a lot better with the remastering and everything. But back then, it was kind of, well... Yeah, this is good, but it's not got the enormous, colossal power that Motorhead had live. Yeah. And um, the mission, and I mean, let me tell me this, you know, he said, oh, the next one's got to be, a, you know, we've really got to do it. <laughs> you know, he knew that they couldn't come out with anything substandard, and it didn't get off to a good start because they went to Rockfield to rehearse and getting Lemmy to rehearse yeah, I mean, they managed to get some riffs, you know. Yeah. And their method of recording anyway was to do the backing tracks first, which is basically the riff, you know. Um, play through the riff, and then Lemmy will go and write the words, and you've got the song. Um, that's how they did it. And um, they started in Rockfield. They didn't have a producer, and then somebody i think it might have been howard thompson um who used to work at bronze um which was the label that signed motorhead um had the idea to get in big mail who had um done a really good job with dr feel good and eddie and the hot rods which meant that he was good at capturing pretty basic rock and roll excitement you know, on record. So yeah. it was a masterstroke. Um, cause Vic, um, I really, I can't speak highly enough about him and neither could any other band. Um, yeah. Uh, and the, the best thing of all was that Jackson studio, which, um, is where he did all his stuff used to belong to, uh, this mad radio DJ called Jack Jackson, who, um, was a big influence on Kenny Everett, you know, he did all the silly voices and all that business. <laughs> right, okay. And he had Jackson Studio, so he could try out all his loony ideas. And um, the happy thing was, it's a half-hour train ride from where I live, you know, on the main line to London. So uh, in a place called Rickmansworth in Hertfordshire. And um, this... Obviously, research for the book would involve me attending the sessions, and I really didn't have to go very far. I just had to hop on the train, and there I was. Um, so that's what I did. You know, I, I went there several times. You know, once they'd done the really hard bits, I, I thought I'd leave them alone for that. But then I, I turned up in the sort of later stages quite a few times, and it was very obvious by then Um and I've just put it in this piece I'm writing. Um, 
I never went straight to the studio. I always went to the pub um, just up the road from the studio, which um, got to bear in mind that this was kind of like a country suburb of Rickmansworth, which is like a a typical sort of town. Yeah. Um, Jackson's was a converted barn. You know, it all used to be like farm buildings, and it still looked like it. <laughs> um, and there was a local pub with all the sort of villagers in it, um, you know, proper Emmerdale kind of place. And um, yeah. I knew going to the studio would be stupid, uh, you know, and so I'd go to the pub and there'd be Lemmy, you know, on the on the fruit machine. And um, it, one time I walked in and he, he he didn't take his eyes off the off the screen, but he just said, oh, this one's going to be a killer. <laughs> and... I knew there was something afoot. So then we, a few vodka and oranges later, you know, we staggered up to the studio and uh, it was very basic. I mean, it was 24 track. Uh, that's when Dick Mayo was sitting and um, it was brilliant. He had this, I mean, he looked very normal, you know, sort of casual <laughs> gear, yeah. short hair. And um, they nicknamed him the turtle um, because Lemmy, you know, because he looks like a turtle. I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. But, you know, one comment from Vic could cut any of them down to size. You know, <laughs> it was hilarious. Um, and then they put a few tracks on the big speakers and it was like, blimey, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And um, there's a massive discussion about where Lemmy wrote his lyrics. Phil always maintained that he wrote half the album on the bog in the studio. <laughs> and... Many, you know, popular myth has it that Lemmy um, wrote a lot of his words, you know, on the throne. But um, about 10 years later, he he came up, grabbed me and said, look, I've never written a song on the toilet in my life. Paul McCartney does that. <laughs> and it sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, but that, that's how it seemed to be coming along, you know. And, uh, oh, I mean, Dick had... He'd stripped away all the flab of the overdubs and that, you know, he brought out all the power in the guitars. Eddie was really happy. And he told Phil to cut out a lot of the... Because, you know, Phil had this enormous kit by now. Yeah. <laughs> and he got Phil to sort of rein himself in. Um, yeah. No easy task, but, um, you know, Phil was actually playing with a lot more direct power rather than you know rattling around the entire yeah 25 yeah. drums so he, he, basi <laughs> he basically made him sort of n nail the song down more as opposed to spending his time trying to squeeze fills in where they didn't belong that's right yeah yeah and um then the other big one was you know because lemmy hated having any bass on his bass um he tried to put you know a bit more all bollocks in Lemmy's bass sound because I mean Lemmy sometimes sounded like a sort of rusty chain guitar you know yeah when he hadn't got his levels sufficiently uh, adjusted so basically Vic worked you know Vic can take credit for the for the sound and therefore the impact and success you know of Ace of Spades but I mean the fact they had this sound evolving also fired up the band you know they they realized that for the first time they were coming out with an absolute monster that was going to be the one you know and uh therefore 
towards the end of the sessions, you know, the mood was really up, you know, and songs were coming and they were doing the hammer and all those. And it was great. And I, I do remember that final playback. You know, it was like I'd had the phone call to say, come along and hear it. And uh, that was incredible. And there was a great deal of celebration going on that night. Um <laughs> The following week, I went round Lemmy's and heard it on his system, and it sounded just as good, which was the acid test. Yes. I mean, he had a reasonable system, but, I mean, it, you know, it, was, it wasn't was expensive. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it trans it translated onto the record. I mean, it, it's I've said it before, but it was kind of like all the planets were in the right place when they were doing that album, you know, everything. And the band were all getting on you know, which was crucial. Yeah. Um, and they weren't too messed up. You know, they had making this album in mind and that was it. You know, even by the follower, by Iron Fist, it was all starting to fall apart <laughs> um, for various reasons. But um, uh, in some ways, Ace of Spades did so well that it, ruined them for future albums with that lineup. You know, there'd only be Iron Fist and Eddie insisted on producing it and you know, it um I don't know what happened, but Ace of Spades was just that little magical spark, you know, and they rode it then for the next year, you know, doing the tour. And I yesterday I heard the live extras on the um box set for the first time, you know, the Belfast gig. Yeah, and they were they were awesome at that time. Yeah, I think, you know, just the whole energy and the sound and the the attack. You know, that no band. I mean, it just reminded me why I liked them so much then. You know, and it's just incredible. It was forty years ago, and um, and it still sounds like there's more than three people playing. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of that was thick. You know, I mean he. He'd, he'd done a really good job with Wilco Johnson, who, who was kind of the only guitarist in Dr. Feelgood that could sound like three. Um, so that was a real masterstroke picking Vic. And, um, you know, it's just, uh, it was just, everything was right, you know. And then the cover, you know, even though it was a <laughs> sandpit in Barnet or somewhere like that, um, yeah. you know, the, the Western imagery. Um, but I mean, I, I talked to Lemmy about that and, uh, you know, the whole thing comes from wild Bill Hickok and, um, yes, you know, the, the dead man's hand, the dead man's hand. And, and you know, the, the gambling thing, the, the born to lose thing, you know, I mean, he, but they love dressing up in their, you know, Clint Eastwood outfits. I was just going to say, Eddie, Eddie is uh, definitely wanting to be Clint Eastwood. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, they loved all that. They weren't so happy dressing up as medieval knights for the following <laughs> one. In yeah. fact, they weren't happy about that at all. But um, but that was part of, the, part of the appeal about Motorhead, that was that you didn't take it, you weren't allowed to take it, too seriously. Well, we, we talk, we're talking about a band who would go on to make TV appearances on, on Tiz Was and The Young Ones. Oh, yeah. I mean, they could not take it seriously. I mean, yeah. you know, Lemmy, Lemmy's hero was Les Dawson. Um, he could do the Les Dawson face. 
Wow. And the voice. Um, oh, that's awesome. You know, not his rock and roll hero, obviously. <laughs> yeah, know. obviously. I mean, yeah. he, but, I mean, he still went on about Little Richard, Johnny Burnett, Jerry Lee Lewis. You know, they were the people he liked, and he was trying to do an update of that spirit, you know, that primal spirit of rock and roll. Um, that's why I used to walk on stage at later gigs and say, hi, you know, hello, we're Motorhead, we play rock and roll. Um, he never, you know, he never said they were a punk band. He never said they were a heavy metal band. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. He, he hated being lumped in with any category because as far as he was concerned, they did Motorhead music and no one else did. And nobody else did at all. You know, um, many tried, but uh, how can you imitate Lemmy without looking really silly? And well, yeah, and how do, how do you? I mean, the fact that they came out with they were just such a a, a a brutal three piece, but making you know making for want of a better phrase sweet music. You know that 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 lineup was you know was playing rock and roll in a way nobody else had ever done. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it, that's what got me um, because it was just three people, you know. But it was. And there was a spark between them, you know, three very different personalities and um, almost like cartoons, you know, but like Phil, you know, I mean, his, his hero was Animal from the Muppets. Um, <laughs> you know, I, could, I could have guessed. <laughs> his main inspiration when he started playing drums, and yeah. which never left him, really. Um, but, you know, they... But Lemmy never, never sat down and went, like many bands... But, right, this is my master plan, we're going to make this amazing album. You know, they were just completely surprised and bowled over that they'd met Vic and were able to make this amazing album. But, um, it, and it was, like I said, it was a, a brilliant one-off when everything seemed to be right because they did try and record Iron Fist with Vic and it just didn't work, you know. Um, by this time, they'd done the tour all around the world. They'd been to the US and um, obviously No Sleep had come out and gone straight in at number one. Yeah. And I think that, you know, they, they became the biggest band in the country, you know, for a very short time. And something happened after that, which meant that when they did the follow-up, um, maybe there was too much serious stuff to live up to. Um but you know we're we're here celebrating Ace of Spades, not what happened afterwards. Well, <laughs> yeah, but it's it, it's fascinating though because as you said, you know it, it's that we you know in the, since we've been talking, we've been talking about those hard times when they were first getting together and being basically laughed at and derided and ridiculed by members of the music press to then in such a short space of time release a release a great album, then put out a live album that goes straight to number one after a massively successful tour and then it's sort of it, it's already started going wrong oh i know i mean but that was typical motorhead i mean <laughs> yeah. you know it's things were always going wrong i mean and lemmy thrived on you know when, when he was on stage i mean sometimes the bomber had come down he'd do a sort of cool pose with his foot on the bomber and it would go shooting back up again with lemmy sort of hanging on to dear life you know <laughs> stuff like this and, yeah. you know, when they did Port Vale, I, I think, you know, when they did Port Vale, the football ground, and uh, Ozzy was supporting. And uh, I think that might have been the pinnacle. Wow. Because, you know, society, the whole... Yeah. 
I, I went up with them and just to see that massive football ground packed with motorhead fans. But even then, you know, they had guys parachuting from a plane while, while they were on. And uh, about half of them missed and landed in a load of people's front gardens and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> <Brilliant>. So, um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I can only think back now and laugh, you know, because, you know, obviously I'm, it's really awful that none of them, none of the main players are, are still here. You know, even, you know, Vic passed away in 1989 um, at a very young age. And, um, you know, I just wish Lemmy was here to see this. I mean, you know, just he would be tickled by the artifact that's being put together in his honour of his great album, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, on the other hand, he'd probably take the piss out of it, you know. Well, is it, well, um, this is a man who spent. This is a man. This is a quote I've repeated before. But this is a man who spent um, who spent two years singing the Eight of Spades to see if anybody would notice. No, I know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was. He he reveled in. I mean, you know, you can hear it on the live thing. I mean, his favourite audience participation spot was you know everybody shouting great big hairy bollocks. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas most bands would be doing their their Robert Plant sort of, you know, yeah. Let me hear you say, yeah. Um, let me. <laughs> he couldn't be seen to be, you know, a rock god. Yeah, um, take, he he never took himself too seriously. No, and one thing that struck me, I mean, the tour. I mean, where do I start with that? I mean, I, I went in their little bus that they. You didn't have luxury tour buses then, um, but they did have one of the first bespoke, like, Ford Transits, you know, but with seats. And um, this guy, Mick Murphy, who was kind of their driver and their minder, um, a man mounting with a heart of gold kind of guy, and um, who also looked after Susie and the Banshees, which... Weirdly, there was a relationship between those two bands because Motorhead used a lot of their road crew and vice versa. Right. Um, both bands had a healthy respect for each other. <laughs> and Mick had this great van and um, with no messing on the spare tire on the back. And, um, you know, that's what Motorhead traveled around in on the Ace of Spades tour. And, uh, but the thing was, there was never any... I'm going to hide in my dressing room till I go on and then bugger off at the end. I mean, they were always, they would sort of circulate in the bar if they didn't get mobbed. And they did until they were mobbed. You know, they used to, you'd find Lemmy in the pub next door to the gig, you know, a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, That had to end because they were so big, you know, and you never know if he'd make the performance, but... (laughs) Afterwards, they would sit there and they'd sign every arm, you know, album sleeve, whatever, um, until the last fan had gone home. You know, they they thought it was the least they could do, you know, um, for these kids that followed them around. And, you know, the hotels would be overrun. I mean, the funny one was being holed up in the moat house in Stoke-on-Trent for four days. Um while they did all the Bradford area kind of gigs. Because um, that that went hideously wrong one night when Phil 
somehow flooded the foyer because he was swinging on a pipe. You know, it was all stuff like this. Um, another tour was great. It was triumphant. I mean, if if there was a if there was a lap of honour, this tour was that. You know, um, and they responded by playing really great every night. You know, and uh, it was incredible. You know, but then. After the tour was over, the next time I saw him, you know, Lemmy had been replaced by Brian Robertson and they were playing a football stadium, you know, no, a, a Greyhound track in Hackney, you know, to about a thousand people. I mean, that's how short their little reign was. But um, that's just it's great it, yeah. the album got discovered later. I mean, it's um, it's not held up as a kind of lost classic that sounded all right then it's held up as one of the greatest albums of all time you know which is i think vindication for lemmy in itself you know for all that well without a doubt I mean, yeah i mean it, it, it appears it appears <laughs> in you know a, a, a thousand albums before you should listen to before you die the hundred greatest hundred greatest rock records ever recorded i mean it is and of course, we we haven't even mentioned how influential that particular album was um, in the creation of an entire genre, which is thrash metal. Well, yeah, um, yeah, that it's it was more influential than any album before it had been on, on a genre. I think. I mean especially in America, because I lived in America from, say, 80, 86 to 1990, and uh, you just heard Motorhead everywhere. <laughs> and you heard Motorhead in the band. You'd go and see at CBGB's, you know, at their hardcore matinee. Um, see, there, they didn't care. I mean, they didn't have the music press to tell them what to like, like we did. Um, well, kids it, over there just wanted to make a load of racket and sound like that Motorhead album. <laughs> well, it, well, it's funny. Do you think? Do you think there's a certain amount of the class system kind of kicking in here, with you know, with our with our musical press trying to pigeonhole people and you know keep a certain amount of order, and then you go over to the states and it's just hey, you know, whatever whatever goes goes. Yeah, I do. I, do. I mean, it's. I mean, I've been a member of the music press now for 45 years and um, just to you know I used to attend editorial meetings at NME and um, oh they had some clueless editors you know it <laughs> really you know it was awful I mean and they really did want to shoot bands down and but the thing you couldn't shoot motorheads down because they were already <laughs> shooting themselves in the foot you know but uh they didn't know what to make of them. And, and yes, it could have been a class thing because, you know, a lot of people who like Motorhead, they like the fact Lemmy would come out and talk to them, even though they worked in a factory or they were on the dole. Um, it was actually the punk ethic put into practice because yeah. a lot of the punk bands were very elitist, you know, I, and I wouldn't lump the clash in with that because, you know, I spent a lot of time with them and they respected Motorhead a, a great deal. Um, but, you know, certain other bands used to elevate themselves in their own eyes, in the eyes of the press. And um, the kids, you know, the Motorhead kids were just happy they had their band and they didn't have to be told 
anything by an MP, you know. Yeah, and also I think I think there's certain elements of the press as well picked up on how friendly Motorhead were with the biking community and they tried to use that against them and turn it into something it wasn't. Yeah, well, that that was a whole thing entirely. I mean, you know, Lemmy's... Lemmy identified with the bikers. He was friends with a lot of them. I mean, Iron Horse was, you know, inspired and partly written by his friend Tramp. Um, Because when I had the first manuscript of the book back and Lemmy um, corrected it by hand, um, he made sure Tramp's name was inserted, you know, next to those lyrics. And... um, but then, you know, the bikers, they they had as many kind of bandwagon jumpers following them around as anyone, you know, and uh, yeah. it all went a bit pear-shaped and there was a really bad murder at Lemmy's place in the floor above, um, which is why he moved. And um, he did that, that gig I mentioned at the Greyhound track was in aid of the bikers and um, the bikers there were great, but, you know, obviously bikers had their own battles going on but no i mean this was a world the music press certainly could not you know that none of their writers had been for a drink at the local biker bar you know i mean their, their limit was um the local indie club you know um it was and the punk clubs you know but uh you know punk the wind went out of punk by like 1979 but motorhead it just happened to coincide with motorhead ascending you know yeah absolutely um, and and i think you know what you said about the, the the music press at the time and just the the landscape of music at the time you know it, although motorhead were you know fought against being classed as heavy metal they were they they were heavier and louder than a, what a lot of people were used to but of course the the you know the landscape of the genre at the time was just absolutely minuscule you know when you're talking about you know heavy metal as, as as we think of it now i mean yeah there, there's very little around so hence motorhead must have been incredibly difficult for these you know these journalists to get their heads around yeah i mean i, I read a review of uh paul morley who was you know enemies i mean now he's sort of known as a pundit and author and he's the sort of person that the business loves, you know, because he's supposed to be edgy and all this stuff. But, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, he's he's reviewed one of the gigs on the Ace of Spades tour and um, he has to begrudgingly admit that they're very powerful. <laughs> but he really lays into the fact they do a song for the road crew. But, I mean... You know, he would not do that in the same room as Lemmy. Um, I like the fact that they were honouring the road crew, you know, because many bands didn't, you know. Um, well, there you go. That's that, I, you know, without wanting, without wanting <laughs> to blow my own trumpet or for, force my own theories on you. There's that class <clears> system again. You know, don't you shouldn't be thanking the help. Yeah, yeah, I it's, know. It's I mean, it was... Ridiculous. I, I just like the fact that they... They were very, they were special in many ways, you know, but that, that was one of them. But I did like the fact that they talked to everybody, you know, as long as you approach them, um, you know, without any kind of preconceptions and, uh, and as long as you didn't look down your nose at them, because I guess Lemmy had had that all his life. Cause I mean, he'd, he'd been a hippie, 
before Motorhead, <laughs> yeah. and you know he was a not a hippie in the sort of hippie uh, far away sense, but I mean he was certainly deeply involved in that kind of you know Notting Hill scene and, and, and Hawkwind. You know, but, I mean, like I say, he got thrown out of Hawkwind because of the the speed. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he's but, you know. Sorry, I was Sorry? just I, I was just going to say that um, around this time, with you know the 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 band emerging, the press not kind of being able to deal with it, and and then Ace of Spades landing, um, it, it kind of sort of made it um, undeniable, undeniable. And from that point of view, you must have. Did you see? You know, did you see a reaction? Um, that differed to that album to everything else you know was it universally everyone going oh right okay we get it now or were there still people who were just still sort of fighting against it well there would still be like detractors um but the difference was i mean sounds gave it to gary bushel um who gave it a rave review so i, I think they were giving the album to the writer that they knew would like it but yeah they still and NME sent Chris Salovitz to do like a big piece on Motorhead in '79, um, and I went with him, um, you know, to to Finland, you know, for the aforementioned trip where we um, uh, set the caravan on on fire and set it afloat on a lake like a like a Viking burial. Uh, right, right, uh, Chris, you know. Chris, you 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 can't you can't gloss over that. <laughs> <laughs> what that that sounds absolutely insane. Well, I mean, it's the whole Finland thing was quite a laugh. Um, they <laughs> they were already there, and uh, the hotel was by a lake. And you know, the night before, Phil had been out in a motorboat and uh, rammed several other boats. And um, but the the gig was in a forest in the north of Finland, you know, it was the Midnight Sun Festival, so it never got dark. Right. That was the weirdest thing. Yeah. And um, Motorhead were on last, which was something like, you know, six in the morning, and by that time, all the gear had been used by all manner of awful bands, and um, it was fairly ropey, you know, Motorhead did not sound good on that equipment, so... Um, they trashed the gear. Um, that's when the the dressing room caravan was... It had been taken a battering all day. Um, but, you know, it, it was assembled into a kind of pyre, you know, set on fire and, you know, pushed off into uh, this field. <laughs> that's just unbelievable. Um, <laughs> they, they got arrested for it at the airport. Um, and... Um, the fun, but the funniest thing, in, which never gets mentioned for some reason, um, on the coach from this godforsaken place to Helsinki Airport, um, everyone was, they were being so badly behaved on the coach, um, wearing the seat covers on their heads, um, lobbing bits of ham at the driver, um, seeing if they could get him to land on his bald spot um, and then when we got to the airport we were at you know the customs whatever it is and he comes running up to us with a briefcase and we thought oh no and uh, it turned out to be all the takings from the gig <laughs> you know he was returning 
Wow. You know, 30, 30 grand or whatever it was, you know. But yeah. then they got pulled in and they spent two days, you know, Filthy Eddie and Emmy got spent two days, you know, locked up uh, for the damage to the PA and everything because they, they just trashed it because, you know, it was already trashed. But, uh, yeah, it was a very eventful trip, um, <laughs> all told. <laughs> is, that, and that, is that just, is that sort of standard uh, motorhead trip of the era? You know, it's, it's like things are going to kick off. Um. No, I mean, that that was them abroad. I mean, I also went in the bronze private plane to uh, Liman, and that was just um, a massive aircraft hangar, you know, with millions of people in it, and it was just a, a motorhead gig, you know, and afterwards we were, you know, back in the dressing room, then at the hotel, you know. Most of the time it was, you know, pretty... Um, pretty much that kind of routine was that, so was uh, that the Le Mans 24 hour location the, the location of the Le Mans 24 hour race oh it could could have been I mean, the, a recording of it was on the bomber um, set that oh, the right. put out right okay um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go and dig through that but you know that was a sort of standard European gig but in the UK I mean it was just bands on the road were pretty much they behaved pretty much in the same way or they did when I went on tour with them. I'm not saying that had any bearing on it but uh, like I say you know Phil ended up flooding the foyer and um, at the at the moat house in Stoke-on-Trent and um, you know there was all sorts of stuff going on but one thing that I did do because I, I was researching the book and I didn't want the book just to be like a load of exploits like I've just been describing yeah. so um I did manage to interview all three of them separately. Interviewing Motorhead together was enormous fun, but you were very lucky to get two words of sense. Yeah, you yeah. know, um, it was mainly banter going on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, great fun, but utterly pointless. <laughs> you know, makes Derek and Clive kind of seem tame. You know, but. Um, <laughs> So I managed to sort of actually sit. I mean, I'd spoken to Lemmy for hours and hours when I used to go around his basement, you know, every day after work, you know, so that, that I actually got Lemmy to reflect on, on the success, you know, and he, he was very happy about it. And if not a little bit overwhelmed by how it had taken off so fast. And Eddie was just pleased with the album and Phil was just very happy that he could, play his drums better than he did before he started making the album, you know, which he credited to Vic. Um, you know, so they all had their... But at that point, I didn't know anything about Phil. I mean, he just dropped out of the sky into the motor, motorhead, you know, drum seat. But um, so I, I got all his background, you know, and uh, I mean, he came from a pretty rough childhood, you know. He, unsurprisingly, he was a bit of a delinquent. You know, an ex-skinhead who'd been in trouble. And um, Eddie, unsurprisingly, came from much more of a elaborate growth hippie kind of background, and he'd been playing guitar for some years. You know, I think he'd even played with John Mayle. Um, he certainly put his time in, which is evident, because he was such a good guitarist, you know. Yeah. Um, he played with Curtis Knight, you know, the guy who played with Hendrix. And... Um, 
you've been with him for 20 months, you know, and it was, uh, it was good to sort of sit there calmly with them, probably for the first and only time I'd ever do that. You know, the rest of it, I mean, I used to get it. Um, all sorts of things, you know, I suffered all kinds of abuse. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, I might have been giving them their only good reviews, but, you know, I, I fell asleep after Port Vale in the hotel bar at about eight in the morning and it was all going on. And I woke up and Lemmy had, he'd stuck a, a shrimp net on my head. There was a lighted fag in my ear, bollocks written on my forehead and, and so on. Um, <laughs> weren't really stitched up. So, yeah. you know, it, it was all harmless fun really um that must have been amazing never... to that must have been amazing to a be so be to be kind of within the the inner sanctum as it were you know as, accepted as part of the the, the motorhead crew um and it I... was yeah it was but i mean you don't appreciate these things till they've gone yeah you know and in my capacity as, as the editor of this magazine um, at the same time I was doing Motorhead I was also on tour with The Clash Blondie, The Ramones um, Susie and the Banshees and several others you know um, <clears throat> I mean at one point I, I was barely home um, you know I'd just do two or three days here two or three days there with, with whoever was going around that I had to cover you know and um and then Keith Richards entered the picture and uh, put another spin on it. But, um, you know, it's, it's it was all part of the job. And Motorhead were my favourite band. Um, if I wanted to have some pure fun, um, as well as, you know, hearing a band that did not sound like any of the others that I, I was dealing with, um, you know, and a nice healthy burst of Motorhead was, was brilliant. You know. Yeah, absolutely. But it was, um, but I didn't, it was only in 82 when I went to see them at Wrexham Football Ground and Brian Robertson had taken over on guitar and insisted on wearing um, black satin shorts um, and ballet pumps, you know, as his stage gear. Right, okay. I think he was doing this on purpose, perhaps, and he refused to play any of the Motorhead songs. So basically, they were they were going on stage with this guy, you know, in these black satin shorts, um, and playing entirely new songs from Another Perfect Day. You know, the one that came along after uh, Iron Fist. Yeah. Um, even the Iron Fist tour, there just wasn't the. By now, they were a big band. They had, you know, some new members in the road crew, and the Iron Fist was just not the bomber. You know, it was, I mean, the Bomber was an attraction in itself. You know, they brought it in, obviously, around the Bomber album. But, um, you know, when, they, when they'd when used that at that massive place, Bingley Hall in uh, Stafford, and that's probably the f- first time, that was 79, but it's probably when I realized how big Motorhead were going to be. Um, you know, they they packed out that massive place near Stafford and um, the bomber was now in full flight. And 
but they they wanted a change, you know, and they, their new concept was Iron Fist, and that, and that just didn't. They had this big Iron Fist on stage, which Lemmy was supposed to come out of, and um, it wouldn't open the first night, you know, he was stuck. Oh no, <laughs> it's just visions of Spinal Tap, isn't it? Totally, yeah. Um, it was absolute. They were getting to Spinal Tap, you know, in some respects, which they found immensely funny you know because they were guilty of a lot of the things <laughs> and proudly so um you know but it it was it's a weird way ace of spades was just an impossible act to follow you know yeah. and um but now 40 years later you all that stuff melted away and then of course um lemmy is sort of hailed as some kind of god you know but he never seemed like it at the time. He was just this amazing guy who, you know, had a a lot going for him. You know, he's the funniest bloke you've ever met, an amazing bass player, and he led this incredible band. So, I mean, he was special, you know. On, but uh, all a... this happened after he'd gone. It always happens, you know, after someone's gone. I mean, Motorhead was still going right up until the end, you know, but, um, you know, they weren't afforded the kind of it was a different world then i guess you know but certainly a different world now to when when ace of spades was released you know that was of its time and like you say we had the young ones i mean you wouldn't get something like that on tv now and, and <laughs> yeah there's motorhead on the young ones and tis was you'd never get that on a saturday morning now. no no but but again, it's just like you said, like we were saying earlier about their, you know, their their willingness to not only not take themselves seriously, but you know, actually poke fun at themselves as well. Oh, um, totally. Which which which, just, which didn't which didn't for a lot of people fit with the music and the image, and I I, I get why it must have been so confusing for some people because it's like this music sounds angry, but they're clearly not angry, you know, and yeah. and uh, that kind of sort of you know confusion. Yeah, I think. I mean, the punks had a really terrible time sort of seeing the funny side. Um, I think maybe that's why I got on with the Damned, you know, because they were sort of not averse to a bit of fun, you know? Yeah. Um, but they didn't take themselves seriously, and that's why they didn't, you know, the Joy Division crowd just could not work it out at all. But um, on the other hand, Susie and the Banshees, who, like I said, you know, they had a kind of, link with Motorhead through the road crew yeah. um, they they were very subtly setting themselves up as well at times you know yes. they, they were great fun you yeah. know it's it, all bands are different but Motorhead um, there still hasn't been a band to top them um, and Unfortunately, I mean, they they made it impossible to like a lot of other rock bands because you always thought, well, that just sounds like a pale motorhead. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a very good point. I mean, is there a case for saying, and we, we almost touched on it earlier, is there a case for saying that basically Ace of Spades was so good that it just it just wasn't it wasn't possible to 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 follow up, and that that really was them peaking. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean. Where did where would you go after that? And the fact, if they'd done the next album with Vic Mail, maybe they would have come out with a good one. But half of it was the fact they just got there, you know. And um, after those 
at the time seemed like a long time, but as you said, it's only three years um, between the first album and um, Ace of Spades. But um, it seemed like, you know, all these years of struggling, which was actually only three, um, you know, they got there and they, they'd released this peak of their career and it was like, follow that, you know? Yeah. Well, you know what they say, the sound, the sound of struggle is a lot better to listen to than the sound of satisfaction. Yeah, because when, when they recorded it, they weren't the biggest band in Britain. Um, they were certainly getting there, but they, there was a lot of pressure. You know, they knew they had to do a really good one. And um, and Levy still wasn't taking it seriously, you know, with his lyrics. But, um, you know, he really was dashing them off, laughing away at them. And, and he, he used to tell me, I'd sit there thinking these things up, love me like a reptile, and then fall about laughing for half an hour before I wrote the next line. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was like he was having he was having a great laugh, but it's probably when he was told you must do a next album that it couldn't come. You know, he couldn't sort of just turn on Motorhead to order. It had to come. He had to be, you know, having a laugh while he was doing it, and they did with Ace of Spades. But, um, you know, I think they they knew that if they brought out a sort of mediocre album, then all that hard work and all the stuff that had happened, like with Port, yeah, sorry, um, Stafford Bingley Hall, all that momentum was already in place. And luckily, they did at Ace of Spades to sort of, <laughs> you know, send the express train flying off the rails and into the stratosphere you know it was um all everything was in the right place heading in the right direction and then once they got there a number one live album you know yeah doubled the you know how do you follow that with iron fist you know which was okay but it does sound like Lemmy thinking now what can i come up with next now yeah. we're the biggest band in the country. Well, well you know. yeah, and that has, that has since become, or you know, around the time that became standard standard record label behaviour as well, wasn't it? It was hit album, right? Record, record, record a few sets while they're on the road touring that album, and then get a live album out on the back of the hit album. Yeah, and yeah. and and it, exactly what happened happened. It became I'm I'm I believe that it's the it was the very first. Uh, live album to go straight in at number one on the UK album charts oh it was yeah I mean I always remember that day you know when the news came through I mean it was because um, you didn't go in at number one in those I mean I, now you know you can you can sell ten copies and go in at number one <laughs> oh yeah you? absolutely you'd be at number one for a few weeks with that <laughs> yeah but you know back then um, you had to sell a lot of records oh, to yeah to do that and um that was an incredible feat you know not many bands did and unless you were the beatles or something like that you know and uh it was amazing but it was just impossible to maintain you know and then it the iron fist tour went around the birmingham city halls and all those places as opposed to the more you know people sitting down you know and bouncers telling you to keep seated and uh, you know it just wasn't right but i mean yeah i just saw it happen with so many bands I, you know saw it happen the clash you know because the internal frictions um i mean eddie when it didn't i don't know eddie just didn't think it was working out with vic when they were doing iron fist and 
producing that album and he also insisted he have a, a slow blues track on there that he sang you know and um and there's another factor which um i don't know if i'm really gonna go there but uh, i know that chances were not exactly being dealt with above board so to speak yeah. Uh, right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, there's there's lots of rumours about record companies around that time. Well, I did an interview with Lemmy in 1990, and um, no, this goes to management as well. Oh, you know, right. um, it's uh, I. All in all, I mean, considering the success they had, um, Lemmy was still living in a, lem- a rented house on the uh, Harrow Road <laughs> um, after. No sleep till Hammersmith. So, you know, no fame and, well, there was fame, but not a lot of fortune. And uh, it all got towards the end of the 80s. And that, that's why he went to live in LA, you know, because that was kind of a fresh start. And also, Lemmy could be in LA and be, you know, walk on the road and females would be swooning in his path. You know, it was. Yeah bliss for Lemmy um, open all hours and treated like a god wherever he went so you know who wouldn't (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely I'd sign up for that and uh, you know he he did come out of Notting Hill I mean this was a big factor in early Motorhead they came out of that Labrick Grove scene and by the 80s Labrick Grove was you know starting to be gentrified and all those funky places where Motorhead used to hang around at, you know, were being, you know, the pubs were turning into wine bars and, you know, the world was changing too. So, um, in a way, Ace of Spades was kind of like the last vestige of the 70s before the 80s really got underway. You know, it's... I, I like to think it put the cap on the on the 70s and sort of kick-started kick-started the 80s for all the other bands like thrash metal bands that you mentioned um yeah you know it it basically got the next decade going but all the other bands are not motorhead (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it was it it, it, they they did fall on hard times didn't they yeah but I, i went to see them rehearse um in 85 would it have been and they were rehearsing Oh, I think it was Latimer Road, you know, that little place they used to go to. And they were coming back with Pete Gill on drums and Phil Campbell had joined by then along with Wurzel. And um, that was a really good motorhead. And I interviewed Lemmy then and it was a kind of, he saw it as a kind of rebirth and return. And and it was. Yeah. But then it went really bad, pear-shaped with the record company and management. And that, you know, four years later... Uh, if not sooner, he was gone to LA. So um, there was a lot of that, you know, that he had to deal with. And um, in the end, I mean, by, he spent his last sort of two decades on on the planet, um, pretty much touring the world and playing the songs from the Ace of Spades and you know the one Overkill and yeah, a smattering of the new ones. But basically, there was a whole whole generations came along and imagine you know i mean if i was 16 now and i just discovered this band called motorhead had made this album four years ago i'd be sitting there open mouthed you know 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I know um, I, I know a lot of people who of my generation whose whose gateway album for them is Orgasmatron. Right, which uh, I thought was a very good album. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I interviewed him around that time too. You know, he was very pleased with that one. And I also like 1916, you know, the the one where he did the First World War ballad. Um, yeah. But this was all great. This was Lemmy growing up kind of thing. And I think Ace of Spades was like Lemmy reaching the first flush of his younger self you know he got where he wanted to get yes and um you know after that it was dealing with a whole new set of now he didn't have to sort of borrow a fiver just to get through the day um he had a you know the realities of the music business and changing trends and all this stuff to deal with but um that's why he went to america though you know he was treated a, a lot more fairly then and um, you know Ace of Spades had been a battle and it was one that they won you know and um, I think once once that had happened you know it was time to go somewhere else but um, yeah oh I don't know I mean I just feel very very lucky that for a start they recorded the album halfway half an hour from where I'm standing right now (laughs) because I'm back here and um even though the studio has been demolished and they're thinking of reconstructing it brick by brick in some museum, you know, which I find very, very weird. Um, you know, this old yeah. 17th century farmhouse that it used to be. Um, you know, it's all gone. I mean, you go past this place on on the train, you know, it all looks different. So I'm just very lucky that all those things fell into place and uh, you know motorhead played my local club um well, well chris i look i i don't think you know i i'd like to say that we're every myself and everybody listening is um is lucky to have you to sort of to still recount these stories because um <laughs> it's um you know it's part of it's part of i won't say the history of heavy metal because uh lemmy wouldn't like <laughs> that it's it's part of you know it's part of rock history and uh, and you're part of 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 um, making sure that the whole story is told, and you know, it's um, it's awesome. Well, that's why it's a mission, you know. It, it's that's yeah. why I really was yeah. very happy, you know, that Miles got me to do those notes because, yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I wrote the I wrote that book. I never actually got to that punchline. Um, <laughs> yeah, wrote, right, okay, the book I remember that. Yeah, I re- I wrote it, and yeah. Uh, yeah, it went right through Iron Fist, and then. I handed it in, and um, that's when Eddie left, and the publisher went, oh, sorry, <laughs> you know. Uh. And then, so I wrote a little bit on the end about Brian Robertson join, joining, you know, but by that time, all the wind had gone out of their sails, and then Robbo left too, and it just all went into the, you know, and it really did sit, it sat in Lemmy, on Lemmy's shelf for about 20 years, and then he gave it back to me, and then, you know, finally, it's a lot of those quotes haven't been seen. You know, since I wrote the book forty years ago. So, it's, um, wow, I'm really, I'm, I'm really glad to impart this. You know, I was their champion forty years ago, and I'll still be their champion now. You know, and I'm writing this thing for Fistful of Metal, and uh, you know, again, I'll, I'll tell everybody, you know, that 
Ace of Spades was a, a once in a lifetime supernova, you know, of the yeah. sort that you would, you know, even Motorhead couldn't follow, which um, is saying something. Yeah. Um, you know, but at least they did it, and I'm so pleased. I was so pleased for them, and I was so pleased for Lemmy, and I still am, you know, because I know he's up there cackling down at us talking now. <laughs> <laughs> I can hear I still hear his voice, you know, even when I'm writing. Um, you know, what a load of bollocks, Neasy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, well, look, I'm, I'm, I can't thank you enough, honestly. It's it's been. Oh, you're welcome. It, it's, been, it's, it's been amazing. It really has, Chris. And and as I said, I mean, I, you know, I can only thank you on behalf of um, of all the listeners and um, and confirm that you know I will I will now go back and 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 read and read all the notes as well. Um, all right. The the whole package looks amazing, and uh, I'm just gl- I'm glad that you're um, that you, you've you've been asked to contribute to it, and and it's such a it's such a great package, and it it really does really does honour the band the way they deserve to be honoured. Well, I'm, I'm just waiting for mine to turn up, hopefully um, very soon, according to Miles. So uh, yeah, can't wait to see yeah. it, because apparently we talked... I mean, originally, Miles was on about like having a saloon doors and all this stuff, you know, but I believe there is a wooden box, which... Um, a dynamite box, so... Well, there's, there's yeah. all sorts of stuff. Um, I haven't got mine yet either, so um, <laughs> I, uh, as soon as it arrives, um, I'm going to be diving straight in. But, uh, Chris, thank you so much. really do appreciate it. You're very welcome, Howard. Thanks <laughs> a lot. If there's anything I forgot, you know, get in touch again. <laughs> <laughs> I will do, no doubt. All right, mate. Thank all you right. very much. All right, then, Howard. Cheers. Cheers Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Wow, indeed. I couldn't stop myself. Um, I really enjoyed doing that. I hope you've enjoyed listening to that as much as uh, I enjoyed doing it. And I hope you're enjoying all these um, these motorcasts. There's plenty more to come. And um, as I said previously, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Social media-wise, any questions about the, um, about the podcast it, um, on Twitter or Instagram, anywhere, just hashtag the motorcast. Um, that'll get to me. Any questions, any suggestions, any requests, stick hashtag the motorcast on there and um, it'll filter its way through to me. So, look, thank you very much for your time. Make sure you subscribe. Sorry I keep going on about that, but it is very important. And um, I will speak to you next time with another great guest and more great stuff from behind the scenes in the world of Motorhead. I don't say agreed. The only God I need is the Ace of Spades. The Ace of Spades.